G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. This is the beginning of John's Gospel. We're in chapter 1, and we're explaining things verse by verse. It's a very grand introduction, and even though I am endeavoring to explain things, I I feel like we are still snorkeling and not yet scuba diving. It's all the introduction. If you ponder and meditate on these wonderful truths, it is so overwhelming. You just want to worship and worship. What we're going to do is continue to learn about John chapter 1. And our lesson is entitled Grace and Truth. In fact, there is a wonderful, wonderful verse within what we're reading today. I'm going to primarily focus on John 1 verses 10 to 18. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Just ponder that for a moment. It's talking about the Word, and the Word with a capital W is, of course, talking of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God, the Logos, L-O-G-O-S, Logos, eternally fixed, unchangeable in the heavens. And we learned earlier that he not only was in the beginning with God, but the word himself was God. But here in verse 14, it says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there is a wonderful word to describe the eternal word becoming flesh, and that is incarnation. In other words, incarnate in the flesh. While some people, in fact many people, might view this as rather demeaning and perhaps insulting of Almighty God, let's never forget that God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. He is the highest of all authorities. But we also know God is limited by His character in the fact that he will do what is righteous, he will do what is holy, he will do what is glorious. He doesn't want to violate these things because his integrity and character are at stake. So God, if he wants to put on flesh, he can put on flesh. There's good reason why he did it. He did it, of course, because he had to be a man to die for our sins. He also put on flesh because people could not stand to see the glory of God. It was too overwhelming. Just ask those that were on Mount Sinai and saw the giving of the law to Moses. Instead of saying, praise God, hallelujah, with uplifted hands, they were exceedingly fearful and trembling at the presence and glory of God. And if the voice of God came from heaven, remember, the voice of God is so powerful, says the Psalms, that it literally splinters the cedars of Lebanon, those great majestic mountain trees, and basically turns them 
into toothpicks. So God uses his son to speak to us, because we learn in Hebrews chapter 1 that in the early times God spoke to us by the prophets, but in the last days he speaks to us by his son, whom he has made the heir of all things. Or as it tells us in Revelation 19 verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Praise God for that. So, we are seeing that he puts on flesh, he dwells among us. That means he lived among the people, in fact, in this case, his own people, the people of Israel. Because the word, when he put on flesh, was born into the house of Israel, into the tribe of Judah, and into the lineage of David. John has more to say about this, but what he does remind us is that he is full of grace and truth. We will take a closer look at all these things as we proceed with this teaching. I'd like to read to you a few verses from John chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. And with this reading, we're going to look at the theme of Jesus Christ. He's not just a great moral teacher or philosopher or good example. He is the eternal word who put on flesh dwelt among us, died for us, rose again, and is coming back. The reference is John 1, verses 10 to 18. Let's listen carefully to God's Word. He, meaning the Logos, the Word, the Christ, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Our reading is from John chapter 1, verses 10 to 18, and our lesson is called Grace and Truth. Let's remember verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. All right, so the word was in the world, he made the world, but the world did not know him. This term, the world, is rather important because, after all, it could have several important meanings. For our purposes, of course, when we talk about the word, we're talking about the Logos, the Son of God. And when we're talking about the world, that's also another story. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the cosmos. What on earth is the cosmos? Well, it's not the actual physical earth. It has to do with the world system. It has to do with 
adornment, decoration, ornament, the circle of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, the ungodly multitude. And these are some of the descriptions that are coming from the lexicon. And basically, we describe the world as a system, a system that has been corrupted by sin, a system that is dominated by the devil himself, a system that has a use-by date, the parking meter is going to expire, and soon. It is the very thing Christ came to save us. And when he says at the end of John 16, I think it's verse 33, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is what he's talking about. A system which is so corrupt that it basically defiles anyone that's part of it. When you come to Christ and are walking with him, you are now in the world, but not of the world. And as John also says very convincingly in his general epistles, you cannot love the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's pretty strong, but it's very true. So the word was in the world, and though the world was made by the word, namely Christ, the world did not know him. In other words, to put it bluntly, the world was clueless about the identity of its own creator. And let's be honest, nothing has changed. Even now, there's a lot of cluelessness about the identity of the one who brought us forth. And that's if you even believe in a creator, which was, of course, very standard fare until basically the last couple hundred years. Then, verse 11 of John 1, it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So the world in general did not recognize him, and his very own didn't recognize him either. And in fact, they went further. They rejected him. The Word, Christ, the Messiah, came to his own people, and they said no. Now his own, what does that refer to? His own includes his family, who thought he had gone crazy. His own represented his own city of Nazareth. They thought he had gone mad as well, and in fact, they were so offended by him, they actually took him to the brow of the hill to throw him down. In other words, they wanted to murder him. Can you imagine what that was like? You grew up with these people for 30 years. You probably, in Jesus' case, didn't put one foot out of place, did everything right, and because of one incident where he's basically explaining the meaning of God's word and amplifying it probably more than they wanted to hear, they want to kill him. They go from admiring his gracious words in Luke 4 to wanting to throw him headlong. So he was not received by his family, although his family, at least some of them, did come to faith later on. He was rejected in Nazareth. He was rejected by the religious establishment elite. He was rejected by some of his people. And, of course, he was rejected by the Romans. As we learn, though, some of his people did come to faith because the early church at the beginning was 100% Jewish. So he came to his own people, his own nation, his own city, his own family, and his own received him not. You would think that's the end of the whole story, 
but it's only just the beginning. Verse 12 of John 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is a very wonderful verse, and it also does highlight a little bit of the paradox that the people who were looking for Messiah missed his train, but the people who weren't looking for Messiah actually ended up embracing him. We're talking about the nation of Israel, ancient Israel as a whole, but not necessarily every Israelite. There were many people who came to faith, and according to Acts, even many priests were obedient to the faith. Well, that's amazing. And we see it happening again. The fact is that the people who waited for him, most of them or many of them missed the boat at that point, but those who weren't, they saw him. Having said that, that's not the end of the story, and we don't believe God is finished with his ancient covenant people, not at all, and we believe they do have a role in the last days, as Bible prophecy teaches. So let's keep those perspectives in mind, and I believe you'll be on the right track. So he came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Those that did receive him and believed in his name, whether they be Jews or whether they be Gentiles, the word gave them the authority to become the sons of God. I believe the Greek word is exousia, delegated power, delegated authority. So we come to faith in Christ being sinners, and yet by the faith of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the effectiveness of the cross of Jesus, we are then transformed from sinner to saint, from powerless, defeated, overcome, wimpish, having failing flesh, into being empowered children who are adopted into God's family. And as it says in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus himself, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Wonderful. So we have the power to become the sons of God by simply believing on his name, be it Jew or Gentile. Verse 13, it tells us, though we have only covered a few verses, the message is profound and glorious. Believers who are empowered children of God became so because they were born of God. That's the key phrase here in John 1.13. Not just born of flesh, not just born of blood, not just of the will of flesh or the will of men, or women for that matter, but born of God. This is, of course, the new birth, and we'll learn a little more about it in chapter 3 of this gospel, that the new birth is mandatory. You cannot see the things of the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the things of the kingdom of God unless you're born again. This was not just a message to Nicodemus, but to us all. John chapter 114, the incarnation. I did mention this earlier, but let's repeat. The Word, the eternal Word, the Logos, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Of course, John is speaking about his people and his nation. His people are the Jewish people. His nation is the nation of Israel. They dwelt, uh, he, the Word, dwelt among us. The eternal God put on flesh and became a human. This is the incarnation in the flesh. And though we are created in the image of God, God in Christ humbled himself and became the image of man. 
the incarnated word lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, of course, John saw his glory. Many others did too, but probably John saw more glory than most any other. This was he, verse 15. John the Baptist, witness to Jesus, declared that this is the one of whom he spoke. He who comes after me actually preceded me. He is not just the Omega. He is the Alpha too. Remember that John the Baptist was actually born before Jesus, possibly half a year before. But he's saying, in essence, that this one who comes after me who he points to as Jesus of Nazareth, actually precedes him, meaning Jesus had a pre-existence. Only that is the prerogative of Almighty God. And then in verse 16, our last verse for now, the word's fullness overflows. Grace comes to all of us, as many as possible, and there is no limit. Let me read verse 16 to you. It says, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. So this is the wonderful news of the coming Savior, the Word of God, God himself, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, and he's full of grace and truth. Of course, we're going to learn more about this as we proceed in this study. But what is our lesson for life? Our lesson for life is this. Just as the Savior embodied grace and truth, it is imperative that we, His followers, do likewise. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.